Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is Courage to Hope. And tonight we have a guest, Carol J. Corio, and she is with Sunset Hospice. And she's been doing it for at least eight years, Carol? Wow. Twelve years. Okay, I wasn't quite sure of that. I figured it out. And tonight we're going to talk about things you may not know about hospice and things that could be myths, could be facts, because uh, I was very uninformed before I met Carol. And I'd like to get everybody else as informed and up to speed with what really hospice is all about. So tell me, Carol, when you started to do it 12 years ago, what was that like? Well, I had um, lost both of my parents. And uh, my mom passed in 2008. My dad passed way back in 1989. He was very young. But they both had hospice. And it was a positive experience for me to be on the receiving end of being a family member. So when I was in, uh, I started in the healthcare industry and I realized that I would like to take my marketing skills and apply them to hospice. So that, that's how I, I got connected. That's how I first got connected up with hospice. And my job is primarily talking to families and getting them to feel more comfortable with the concept of hospice. Because when a doctor or um, you know, a social worker or, or a wellness nurse at assisted living connects to a family and says, oh, your mom and dad you know, are ready for hospice, it just sends people into a tizzy. You know, and, and I like to say, you know, they almost like recoil. Like, oh, my good, what do you mean hospice? And so part of the what I love about my job is that I'm able to explain what hospice really is so that people don't need to feel as concerned about it. Okay. Now, um, the actual term hospice, what would you give it as a definition? Well, it was it's only been around in the in the United States for just a little over 40 years. And the reason that it became into prevalence in the United States is because there was a Medicare law that was passed that made hospice part of the Medicare benefit that everyone receives. And so that was like the first time that hospice came onto the scene. Now, before that, there was hospice in Europe, and um, it was a woman named Dame Sicily, and she started hospice, you know, not in the United States. But once it became a Medicare benefit here in the United States, it became an important um, offering. And I think the, the next thing I'd like to share is that what people do not realize is that hospice is what I like to describe as the last free Medicare benefit that we are all going to be entitled to. Because all the services that are provided by hospice are provided under a Medicare benefit. And most people don't realize that. They don't know that it's a, it's a benefit that's included as part of their Medicare. You need nope. to pay, you need to pay into, you know, you need to be part of the Medicare system in order for you to access the benefit. But if so many of us have, for all of our years, have paid into the Medicare benefit. And so when it comes time that we can activate it, um, it's available for free. So it's available for everyone. But if, if like, um, I didn't sign up for Medicare until I was 65. So what if I was 63 and had and had a terminal disease that is not going to be cured? Would well, I be you, out? May, you might be a little bit out of luck in that you might need to find a hospice that would be willing to take you 
on a pro bono basis. And so many of the hospices are willing to do that occasionally because that's the right thing to do. It doesn't happen very often that people don't don't have the Medicare benefit. So it's it's not it's not usually um, an issue. But hospices really want to give back. So many of them, you know, if they came up against a scenario like you just described, and if they were able to take that person on, they would make that as a decision on an individual hospice agency by hospice agency basis. So you you might not be out of luck either. But the the majority of people are covered under Medicare, and so they're included. So what does the hospice person do while they're in the home uh, with the patient? Well, let me back up and, and, and let's talk a little bit about how do people qualify for hospice? Because because it's a Medicare benefit, that means that you need Medicare gives all the hospices and all the hospice has all the hospices have the same exact guidelines that they follow. And I'll talk about them in a little bit. But they give us guidelines. And so what happens is the individual who's approaching the end of their life who may qualify for hospice, they need to meet the criteria that Medicare gives us. We can talk about that a little bit more too. But And so once they meet the criteria, then we're able to access the benefit. And so that's what I describe and explain to families. How um, if we're if your mom, let's say if your mom is um, able to meet the criteria that Medicare um, tells us we need to meet, then we're going to be able to bring in a whole team of people. We can bring in um, a nurse case manager. We bring in a chaplain. We bring in a social worker. We bring in a home health aide to help with some of the personal uh, items that need to be done. Um, we have volunteers. Um, we, if someone's a veteran, we, we support them as veterans. And with each person that we bring on to service, we create what I describe as an individual plan of care. So by that, I mean, we, we figure out how often each member of our team should come to visit that person. So typically the nurse comes one to two times a week. The social worker and the chaplain come one to two times a month. And the home health aide can come anywhere between three and five days a week for like an hour a day. So you can see how that's like a whole team of people that are going to support um, the person. And hospice can be done pretty much anywhere. It can be done in someone's home. It can be done in an assisted living. That's very common. It can be done in a skilled nursing facility. That's also very common. Um, so those are kind of the, the three general kinds of places. But it's nice to know that hospice can be done um, literally wherever the person calls home. So the frequency that they come what I love about it is it can change because when someone first comes on to hospice, they may only need to see the nurse one to two times a week, but inevitably they are declining toward what I describe as the end of their journey. We don't know when that is, but we may need to have the nurse come more often closer to the end. And that's what I love about hospice. It's not that you get a certain amount of this team to come to visit on any given day, you get exactly the amount of time that you need those team members to visit. So toward the end of the journey, the nurses are gonna be there every single day. And that's that's a nice part about the hospice is, is that you, the hospice team is there when you need them. Now, if there's any equipment that would be beneficial to help make the person more comfortable, like um, very common um, when people start on hospice, sometimes having a hospital bed, um, especially in the home, makes it easier for them to get in and out of bed and go up and down and it makes them more comfortable. So that's included as part of the benefit. Um, any medication that's related to 
the diagnosis that they come on hospice under is also covered under the hospice benefit. And then any medication that is not part of the diagnosis that just stays covered the way it, it normally is. Um, so I'm trying to think that's, that's kind of a good overview of, of how it, how it works in terms of the frequency and the team. Um, well, the other thing I can think of to say is what I love is that the social worker and the nurse and the chaplain, they're there to support the person who's on hospice, but they're also there to support the family members because there's two, there's two, and there's two groups that are involved. There's the person who's facing the end of their life and the concerns that they have. And then there's all these family members that are dealing with the fact that they may be losing someone that they love and having a social worker and a chaplain to be there and visit. And the chaplain is the chaplain and the social worker. I always describe them as they kind of present when they visit as friends visiting, you know, they, they, they don't need to be talking all spiritual if that's not what needs to be talked, but they're there to talk about spiritual issues. If that's what the family members or the person on hospice wants to do. Um, and the social worker, the same. They're there just to answer the questions that come up. Um, as you can appreciate in every family, there's lots of family dynamics. There are people in the family that, you know, they're, they're accepting of what's happening. And then there are people that just need a little bit more comfort and a little bit more um, just conversation and getting used to it. Um, one other benefit of hospice is that we provide bereavement services to the family for 13 months after the person has passed. So that means our social worker is reaching out to the individual family members. And what's interesting is that we always kind of look at each family and figure out you know, the bereavement risk, you know, there might be one particular daughter that's going to take it really harder than another, and that we might spend more time checking in with her, that type of a thing. And it's just really flexible in terms of, um, we basically provide what we need to provide to the person who is approaching the end of their life, and also to the family. Now, what's interesting, another thing that I just thought of to mention is sometimes when folks get on hospice, they meet this criteria and um, they have all this extra service and attention and people seeing them and they kind of level off. And sometimes they actually start to improve. And because of the Medicare benefit criteria requirement, if they improve too much, we literally have to graduate them. We have to stop doing the hospice services because unless we're showing even a, a somewhat of a decline, even if it's just a very gradual decline, then we're able to keep them on. Now we know that if someone does graduate that they're not going to improve forever, they will probably and inevitably be declining again. And so then they can come back on hospice. And I'm thinking another question you might think to ask me is, well, how long can someone be on hospice? So when we get the criteria approved at the very beginning that it meets what Medicare says we need to meet. Oh, and there's one other thing. We also need a doctor to give us um, an order to see whether the person uh, meets the criteria for hospice. So that's really, there's really three things at the beginning. The doctor needs to give us an order to say, hey, I think this patient might meet criteria. Would you please do an assessment and then get back to me and tell me whether that meets it. And then the family needs to be on board. Either the person that is um, approaching the end of their life or the family member. Um, and then we need, to, we need to meet the criteria and we're able to move forward. So... Um, I, I was reading where at the end of six months, you can get like a renewal. 
Yes. Thank you. You got me back on track. So the first, the first, the first certification period it's called is for 90 days. And then there's another certification period for 90 days. And then every 60 days after that is where we need to do a recertification. Now, another nice thing to explain is that part of the Medicare requirement is that we have what's called an interdisciplinary team member, team meeting with all the members of the team every 14 days. So twice a month, it's required that the nurse and the chaplain and the social worker come in and meet with the medical director of the hospice and review each patient that's on hospice. It's pretty cool because it, it keeps everybody in sync what's going on with all, all, the, um, all the patients. And if it's at a time when we're meeting those dates of the, you know, the 90 days or the 60 days, then we need to recertify to Medicare that this person continues to meet the criteria and that they can stay on. Now, another question that may come up is um, there is one piece of the criteria. It says that the doctor is uh, certifying that he wouldn't be surprised if this person may not be with us in six months. That's one of the criteria. And that's where everybody thinks, oh, you're only on hospice for six months. Well, what's interesting is what I say to families all the time is, Listen, there's, in my opinion, there's only two people that know when your mom or dad say is, is going to leave us. And I said, it's God and it's your, your, your parent. In other words, no hospice nurse, no medical doctor, no one knows what the journey is. But there's been enough criteria that has lined up so that we can activate this wonderful free benefit. And then we just provide the support to that person until they reach the end of their life, whatever that is. And people have been on hospice for a year, two years, you know, sometimes longer. Um, If someone has a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, unfortunately, that is a very long and prolonged, slow, steady decline. So sometimes people can be on hospice for a longer period of time when they have a terminal illness that has a long drawn out time frame to reach the end. I was going to say, I think uh, President Carter was on hospice and still is, isn't he? He still is. And and, and it's, been, uh, it's been months. Yeah, so he, but I he's know. been teaching the world that um, he's always been a, you know, a, a, a a renaissance kind of a guy in terms of doing different things, but he's, I think he's trying to let people know that hospice doesn't mean you're going to pass away in two days from now. Um, the, the beauty of, of starting hospice, as soon as you meet the criteria that Medicare allows, means that the person that's on hospice and the whole family around that person gets to develop a longer term, deeper relationship with the team members, meaning the nurse and the social worker and the chaplain. So that's, that's, that's a gift. So um, yeah, we don't know how long he'll be on it. God love him, but um, I'm glad that he, that he let everyone know that, that he chose that route because it's, it's created some conversation in the media too about hospice that's been nice exposure. I think the misconception that most people have is as soon as you hear that somebody's on hospice, they assume that they're going to die in the next two to three weeks. Correct. That seems Correct. to be, but on, on average, what is the length that most people are on hospice before they die? Is there like a national average to this? Yeah, I think um, it is true that sometimes people come on hospice and they pass very quickly. But if we were to, analyze it, it means that we didn't know that they met the criteria and they could have been on hospice maybe six months earlier and they didn't get the the benefit. Um, And then sometimes people, 
it's just their time to go. They can decline very quickly. And sometimes people can stay on for a long period of time. I've seen situations where someone is not going to leave until they have some resolution with a family member. So they're kind of hanging on and hanging on. And sometimes family members stay by the bedside and they say they, you know, they don't want to leave. And then the person doesn't act. They just don't, they don't, don't pass away until that person has to go home to take the shower after being there for three days. And on the way home, the person passes. So everyone's different. Everyone, every family member is different. Every person who's on the journey to reach the end of their life is different. But the idea behind hospice, and I'm going to kind of back up a minute. The whole idea behind hospice was to make sure that no one died in pain. That's actually the reason hospice came about. Um, that sometimes there are illnesses that are very painful. Um, so some families are concerned. They say, oh, I'm afraid, you know, my, my mom's going to just be, you know, totally on meds and she's just going to be out of it. And I like to explain that the hospice nurses are, and this is a calling for someone to be a hospice nurse, by the way. I mean, you, you don't take this lightly that you choose to be a hospice nurse because all of your patients are going to be leaving you in, in, a, in a certain time frame. But when pain becomes part of the process, and many times if someone has a cancer diagnosis, pain is part of the process. Our nurses know how to, I describe it to the family, you know, they start out with pediatric doses, meaning they just start out with the smallest amount of pain med that they can try to get the person comfortable. And then if that doesn't work, they just give it a little bit more. It's people have this perception that the minute we start with the pain medications, that the person's just going to be completely out of it. And I would like to, you know, take that myth and explain it more further that that's not really the way the hospice nurses believe. They want to start out slow and they just want to give as much pain meds as is required to do the most comforting job for the person who might might have some pain with the diagnosis. And not everyone, not everyone needs to have pain meds. And sometimes they only need it for the very, very, very end, you know, um, and they've been on hospice a long, long time and they never needed any pain meds. So it's, it's uh, there's no um, one way. It, I mean, every case is different. Every family is different. Every situation is different. Yeah, I was at a, at a actually at a thing at the, um, call it a, a dinner meeting at um, one of the senior centers in, on the South Shore last night, and it was all about death. So one of the questions I have is, your your proxy person or the person you dedicate um, should the I want hospice care when necessary or when qualified. Should that be on your on your Medicare? I mean, on your your will or your or your proxy from how you want to be taken care of? You know, like. Someone that says you want to be resuscitated and you don't want to be resuscitated. Well, right. I want proc I want hospice care if if I qualify. Should that be on your on your proxy statement? It it, it typically is not, but it can't it could be. Um the the healthcare proxy is the person that everyone has designated that if they weren't able to make decisions, the healthcare proxy will make their medical decisions. You know, people hear the word POA, the power of attorney. So think financial decisions when you think POA and think medical decisions when you think healthcare proxy. And the doctor determines whether the person who is on hospice is able to make their own decisions. And at the beginning, they might be able to make their decisions, but then they might reach a point. And what happens is then the healthcare proxy is activated. And when that happens, it means that now the doctor has said, I just don't believe that your mom can, 
make decisions for yourself. This is why she chose you as the healthcare proxy. You've had conversations with what her wants and needs are. So now the healthcare proxy will be making the decisions. So many times when we sign up families for hospice, sometimes we're signing them up with the person themselves if they are able to sign a legal document. And then sometimes we're signing with the healthcare proxy. And um, what's required to get started with hospice is there's a consent form. And the consent form is simply that um, two things I tell families, you know, you have the right to pick any hospice that you would like. And you also have the right to revoke or, or change that hospice and, and not have hospice or change to a different hospice. And that's kind of nice because it means that you're not stuck with, uh, you know, if, if you're not gelling with the group that's there, you could make a change. So hospice groups, a profitable company, in other words, like the company you work for, is that a company that you, you, you hire them and they're making, they're making money from, from the whole yep. hospice so, thing? So I'm going to say one more thing about the consents and then I'm going to answer that question because the two tie together. So in order to activate the hospice benefit, the, 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 the person themselves or the activated healthcare proxy needs to sign the consents that say which hospice they're choosing. And then it also says that they understand by signing this document, this is the legal instrument by which the hospice will present to Medicare so that they get reimbursed for the services. So every hospice gets reimbursed for services from Medicare. It's free to the person and it's reimbursed by Medicare. Now, there's two kinds of hospices. There are um, for-profit and non-profit. And um, it's just a personal preference. I've worked for both. And I found that um, it's the quality of the people that run the company and that are on the front line that make the difference. You know, it, it's a, it's a, that's more of a personal preference. The non-profit, just so to be clear, the people who are working for the nonprofit still get paid. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Yeah, that's what I mean. It sounds like nonprofit means, oh, I'm not they, no. they, they do it because they're good human beings and they want to spend their time doing this. You know, it's well, like the the idea behind nonprofit is they're supposed to invest all the money they have back in so that they're not making a profit. They're just paying everybody that needs to be paid. That's the okay. difference. That that makes sense, you know. Yeah. So um, I was reading about palliative care. Am I saying that word right? You are. Okay. Um, does, does the nurse get to decide or does she have to call the doctor anytime they want to increase? Because that's, that's the more serious patients, right? No, actually, so, um, so another thing to just add, seeing as you asked me that great question, is the... There's all these two doctors that are following every patient that's on hospice. It's the medical director of the hospice itself, and it's the PCP of the patient. And so now you've got the advice of two, two, two doctors. The nurses that go out and meet with the family and the patients they make recommendations. Oh, I think we should, I think if we did this, that would be good. But, you know, a nurse can only make a recommendation. So she works hand, hand, hand lockstep with the PCP. And it's always the doctor that recommends what the final uh, change in medications are. So that answers your question about um, the doctor getting involved. Now to come back to the palliative, um, I describe palliative as palliative care tends to be before you meet all the criteria for hospice. So you might only have, you know, 50% of the criteria that hospice needs, but you might have some symptoms that need to be managed. And now you can have a nurse practitioner make some visits to come out and, and meet with the family. The difference is, and, and this is another thing I now want to talk about the differences. The nurse practitioner for palliative would come out on a schedule basis. 
So they might be coming once a month to kind of look in on the patient, see how their symptoms are going and make some recommendations for changes. But the hospice never closes. So even, so another thing that's really important to know is that um, we have the regular staff that works during the day and they make the regular visits. But if something were to happen after five and before eight in the morning when the regular team are working, there's nurses that are available immediately to make a phone call and available to literally get in their car and go to the patient and help them if they need it. And the, and the difference, say, with palliative is that you wouldn't have access to your palliative nurse practitioner outside of a scheduled appointment, as opposed to once you're on hospice, you have access to a nurse 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's very comforting, especially to families um, at home. So if something was going on and, and they had a question, they would call and the nurse uh, would call right back and it could be a nurse that they're even familiar with. And they'd say, hey, this is what's going on with mom or dad. And they would say, oh, well, let's try making this change. And they go, okay, great. And they try to triage it over the phone. But if there's any concerns, there's always the um, comfort that the nurse is there ready to get in her car and come out to see the patient if that's what needs to happen. So that, that's, a, that's a big service for hospice when you think about it. We, we never it, close. It, We're open 24-7, and we have staff that are staffing us on the weekends and on the nights, as well as the regular team that we have during the day. Well, I would say that people die over 24 hours. Could be 2 in the morning. It could be 2 in the afternoon. There's no... No, and when they, do, when they do pass, the nurse needs to go <coughs> out and be there with the family and coordinate everything involved in that. That's another benefit of hospice is that they will have a nurse with them when that time comes. So I've been watching a commercial on TV that says, be an organ donor. You can be age 15 to 105. Mm -hmm. So I'm an organ donor. Let's say I'm in the hospice care. Mm -hmm. And um, how does that work where you can preserve the, the organs if someone's if it's undetermined what time they'll die or what day they'll die. Well, How does that, that is, yep, yeah, no, that, that's a great question. So that is part of the, the social worker's intake process. In other words, the social worker, as part of her getting to know you and getting all the information she needs, she would, she would ask, I, did you want to be an organ donor? And then she would ask, what group are you donating to? And what's the phone number? Because they need to come and things need to move quickly when that happens. Right. Yep. So that's put in place. In other words, we will be asking the patient, okay, where, you know, if it's that you want them to, you know, do some Alzheimer research, then we've got to get it to the people that do the Alzheimer research. So. So that does happen. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. No, it, and it's all pre it's all prearranged, just like um, having the funeral home be prearranged so that we we all know where where the body's going to go. And it's everything's in place. That's and that's part of the social workers job, is to talk with the family. And sometimes families are reluctant. They, they, they feel like, well, maybe if I don't decide in the funeral home, this won't happen. And the social worker tries to teach them, you know, let's just get it ready and let's not worry about it. And then, you know, let's let everything unfold. Yeah, it seems to me if you're well organized, the fear of death won't be quite so bad. Um, part of it. And these wonderful, the social workers and the chaplain and, and even the nurses, they, they know how to just be there with the person and answer the questions and, and bring it like bring in the resources. If somebody was starting to ask spiritual questions, they might reach out to the chaplain and say, Hey, listen, can you, can you stop by and talk to them? You know, he's ready to talk about some of the spiritual issues. And that's kind you know, that's really awesome to think that we're going to have a resource like that coming to the patient 
at the moment the patient is ready to talk about the things that relate to that. Because sometimes people aren't ready to talk about them at the beginning. That's another finesse is for our team to just be present, be ready to listen, be ready to answer questions, be ready to help people, you know, feel better about what's coming, but but then not not be overbearing about it. It's a it's a from, from listening to the people at my table last night, the ones who who've already paid for their funeral home ten years ago. Yep. They they um they feel pretty good about it, you know, and it's something that's can be established and get it out of the way so you don't have to worry about your relatives. Yeah. It is a great idea to do that ahead of time when you're healthy. When you're healthy, because you can make the decisions you want to make, you know? Right. Right. You know, because I I get the feeling that especially when it comes to coffins and people who are going to get buried in the ground or, or just have the wake and then get cremated, they, it's okay, you know, if, if the if the person dying is the one that says, yeah, I'm okay with a used coffin for the funeral, for the wake. I'm okay with, you know, because when, when it's the, the kids making the decision, I think they feel that they don't want to skip on anything for their parent, you know. And It I, is I think, nice when the parent helps say what they want so the kids have real clarity. And it's really stressful when they're not sure, and then they're trying to do the right thing. Oh, that's when siblings start arguing and one doesn't talk to the other one for the next five years. You got that right. And I'm sure you've, as what you do, you see it all the time, you know, so it's, and that's why we can't emphasize to our audience to get it organized. Because there's one thing we all know we're going to do is die. We just don't know when. Well, and and, and if you, if you could emphasize just the importance of having that healthcare proxy document and then even putting even putting your your personal affairs that's a whole other conversation about making sure all people's personal affairs are in order but the the one that relates to us in the hospice side is having a healthcare proxy we, we're at, we're not actually able to take someone on service unless we have a healthcare proxy so so get it done now yeah, doesn't exactly. matter how old you are. Get it done yeah. now and have it out there. And you can always change it. Yep. If you live for another twenty years and you get divorced and remarried, you can put no, your you new spouse on. It's a living. It, it can be a living, breathing document where it can change as as you 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 make changes. You're right. That's correct. You know, so let's get get it. As you said, get it done. So, what what do you think is the biggest myth about hospice? I think people they're. People are afraid of hospice. It, it, when they hear the H word, um, they just almost recoil. And I think that um, when I'm talking to families, when I f- feel like I've done a, a really good job at getting them over that fear, is when we start the conversation, I can tell that you know someone's that their doctor or someone's told them that it's time to talk about hospice and, and they're very apprehensive. And when I explain about you know the free benefit from Medicare and all this equipment and all these extra people that are coming in and all the extra services, it takes away a lot of that fear. And then they'll say to me something like, "Wow, do you think my mom?" will be able to activate her hospice. And I said, I sure hope so. You know, we're going to do the assessment and we'll make sure that we meet the criteria. So most people coming into hospice don't don't know that it's a Medicare benefit and they don't know all of the all of the wonderful teams that I just described that that come in with the nurse and the social worker and the chaplain. And they don't realize how much service is offered. But when if you're able to explain it to them in a direct and calm and supportive way, they, they realize, oh, this, this could be a good thing. And that's, that's what makes my job rewarding is if a family can recognize that, um, you know, adding hospice at this point could be a real big benefit to, to their loved one. Yeah, and I would say, despite what the loved one has said over the years, when it when it's getting t- closer to that time, there'll definitely be a change of attitude. I I know. I mean, I just know a lot of different people that are 
that I've seen that have passed that have been much older than me. Um, they definitely changed their ways in the last 30 days, you know, when all of a sudden the person who doesn't go to church for 20 years decides to go to mass every morning, yeah. you know, you know, things yeah. change once they know that the time is coming quicker than they think, you know, uh, quicker than they hope to think. Let's put it that way. Um, so now the company you work for, Sunset Hospice? Correct. And uh, how would somebody get a hold of you if they had questions? How would you like them to? Well, um, I'll give you I'll give you my direct number. Or I'll give you an email. What do you what What do you think is best? Both. Okay. So my direct number is seven seven four three eight four four seven one six. And then my email is c c o r i o at sunset hospice services.com. Okay. And for those who don't have a pencil or a pen or you're driving down the highway and we don't want you to smash your car up, um, we'll put these this phone number and the uh, email address on our on our uh, website under under courage to hope under podcast. Because there'll be a podcast with Carol. So anybody that wants to go back and listen at a later time, they can. You'll be you'll be on there for and you can go to um, Apple Podcast or whatever podcast that you usually use, and you'll be able to hear this um, discussion over again. Now, you were started to tell me a little bit about Sunset Hospice has something different regarding. Uh, aromatherapy or or something you were going to talk to me about yeah just um what's what really drew me to um join the the sunset hospice team was that their core belief is to use um holistic therapies so we've uh, created some wonderful aroma lotions that are created from um, authentic essential oils that come from plants, you know, they're not made in a laboratory. They're, they're really high quality. We're going to use um, aroma massage with our patients. And we're also gonna do some training of, um, for family members and for some of the staff in, in the assisted livings um, so that they think about how to be more present when they're actually interfacing with uh, all of the patients and family members. So, and um, I have been involved in aromatherapy for, I don't want to tell you over 30 years. And so it's been a, wow. it's been a passion of mine. It was enough, that was a prior career that I had. And now for me to be able to match up my two passions, which are hospice and aromatherapy, it's kind of an exciting um, thing that's happening. So thanks for asking. So would, would Reiki be part of that too? Yes, the Reiki that the, our nurses will be doing Reiki energy and our team um, will be uh, either come to us already trained in Reiki or we're going to train them in some, you know, energy kinds of medicine so that when they're approaching family members, they're approaching them from, from that um, perspective. Yes. I'm very much in favor of Reiki because it's, as well as aromatherapy because of the calming effect that it has. They do. They do. Yeah. And, and um, I know that a lot of anxiety, you know, and even the aromatherapy for the, for the relatives might be a good idea. Well, what happens is by giving the family members this beautiful aroma lotion with the, the, the incredible blends, and that's a whole other story in and of itself, but, um, and to do an aroma lotion massage with their loved one, they get to do something with their loved one. And they both get the benefit of feeling these calming and relaxing aromas from the really authentic aromatherapy oils. So it's a really nice combination. Now, is there scientific research that goes into this? 
or is it trial and error? Well, it's, that, that's, a, that's like a loaded question. Um, before 1920, when penicillin was invented, we didn't have any medicines. All the medicines that we ever used were plant-based medicines, right? right? And that's what these are. These are plant-based medicines. Now, it's, it's not realistic to not use whatever regular medicine that we can to make it benefit. So I feel like these plant-based medicines are complementary to what, what the medicines that doctors uh, recommend. So the two go hand in hand. You can't do one without the other, I think. And, but it certainly is a positive to add this perspective of the plant-based medicines into the healing process with hospice. Nice. It's a nice combination. One, yeah, I was going to say just to have the aroma around. I know. I know. Uh, where I where I met you when the other night at the open house, I uh, just the uh, the aroma in the building, uh, not yes. the room the way they were cooking, but the other room. No, exactly. Uh, had a very calming, soothing effect without without anything. You know, it was yep. just that aroma was there and uh, puts you in a state of mind that's very comforting. Well, and well, and we've developed these blends with. Um, with my aromatherapy mentor who uh, we've been connected for over 30 years and she made these special blends to be used for sunset. So that makes them special. That's very good. So how many hospice companies would there be in, let's say in Eastern Massachusetts? We, oh, there's we quite talking... a few there and they're all, they're all like certified and, um, they all have Medicare numbers and they all have to meet certain criteria. And, um, boy, I wish I, I you know, there's a lot, you know, maybe a hundred. Yeah. There's, there's a, a lot of, of our listeners are on the North shore. Right. And then there's another group in the Western suburbs. And so nationwide, because we're also a lot of people stream that show from, from New Hampshire to Florida. So we, we do have, um, people listening. So there'd be a hospice in just about in every state, right? Well, right. And so what you can do is you can go on the, um, the cms.gov government site and you can look up the hospices in your state. And I do believe that they're now um, giving ranking, not ranking, but they're giving um, just like they grade the nursing homes all across the country, I believe they're starting to do the same thing for the hospices. So there's lots of good information that you can get from the um, cms.gov website. And that's a national one. Like if locally, you'd look under Massachusetts, but if you're in any other area, you could find out where all the hospices are because they're all certified and regulated by, the, by Medicare. And is there a regulation that if you're a hospice nurse or, or one of the hospice caregivers that you need to have some type of therapy for yourself once or twice a year, or at least to, to be because of dealing with people dying so often. I mean, like we, we, I, I had a woman on two weeks ago who managed first responders and first responders have seen so much that the suicide level has gone up. Mm. quite a bit. So do we have to have a, an alert out for the hospice individuals to make sure that they're getting, they get their own care? I don't think there's a, a ruling about that, but I, I do know that in each, in each hospice, the clinical team that oversees the frontline staff, it's their responsibility to look out for their people. You know, if somebody's getting burnt out or things, you know, they're, they're upset, you know, and, and, and you get closer to some people than others. And when they pass, it, it hits you harder than others. That's just a normal thing for all of us. Um, so that's that's I would say that I trust that the individual agencies look out for their people to make sure that they give them the self-care training and the self-care time off that they need. Okay. 
And before I let you go, Carol, is there a question that I didn't ask you that you'd like me to, that you'd like to answer? No, that's a good one. And I think um, I'm pretty sure we kind of covered all of the pieces that I wanted to cover. I, I think, uh, I think I covered everything to make, I hope I, I hope people come away realizing that hospice is a wonderful um, benefit and that if you can activate hospice sooner in someone's journey toward the end of their life, when they meet the criteria, it just means that you're gonna get more support and more. In fact, there have been studies that say that people that are on hospice live longer than people that are not on hospice. And, and all that really means is that by giving you the extra support, it just, it just makes the family feel better. It makes the person going through the journey feel better. It's just, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a free benefit. That's excellent. I mean, and I've also read that once you stop fearing death, you, your death can be much, much yes. better. Yes. That, and obviously with the hospice team working with you, the fear of death would, will subside quite a bit and you'll be able to go off in a yep. comfortable way. Yep. And this is not political either. That's the other thing. I, you know, this country is so divided about everything. But I want to emphasize, and if you tell me if I'm wrong, that hospice is definitely not political. No, you not know. at all. Yeah. It doesn't no. matter whether you're red or blue or whatever. Nope. No, I owe you fall on. No, it, it matters whether you um, have a Medicare benefit that you're able to activate. How about that? Right. And you paid for it. You might as well. Correct. Take and care of it. You also need to, and you do need to meet the criteria that, 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 that hospice, that the Medicare um, requires. And that, I'm glad you didn't ask me any questions about that. That's more, that that's like a whole different thing. Um, it's really the doctor and the family and and many times if you're at an assisted living or if you're at um, a skilled nursing, the social worker or the wellness nurse knows that says to the family, listen, I think it'd be time if you would talk to, to hospice and just learn about it. And many times I'm talking to the families and I'm just educating them and getting them over that initial feeling they get when they hear the H word. And then once they get over that feeling, then they start to listen and they start to say, wow, this sounds like something that might benefit my mom and make, make her or my dad or the loved one, whoever the person is. And this might be a benefit to them. So that's kind of that's kind of why I enjoy doing what I do is helping families to not fear what the word hospice, but embrace it. And that I'm sure that's that can be very rewarding. Yeah. Okay. We want to thank you very much. We've been talking to Carol Corio of Sunset Hospice, and she has helped us today understand hospice a lot better than we knew an hour ago. And, you know, the name of our show is Courage to Hope, and Carol has definitely given people hope and teaching the courage to go forward and not be afraid of the word, the H word, as she calls it, hospice. I've never heard that term before, but now I'll... I'll never forget it, okay? And I thank you very much for your time. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope, and we appreciate you listening today. Thank you very much.